0: All right, why don't you turn to Nahum chapter 1, please. Nahum, he's right after Micah, right before Habakkuk. The message is uh, entitled, The Perfect Judge. We're going to look at Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. The city of uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, as you know. It had been spared by the judgment of God in the past at the preaching of Jonah. Remember, Jonah hated the Assyrians because they were so cruel and he didn't want to go. And his rebellious, disobedience, he headed out for Tarshish. And God prepared a storm and a great big fish to swallow him up. And he kind of presented a proposition that he couldn't turn down. And he seemingly seemed to be obedient, but he was reluctant. But he went anyway. And in his preaching, Nineveh repented. That was around 665 B.C now, a hundred years later, you've got Nahum speaking around 660 B.C., and he's going to proclaim the inescapable judgment of Nineveh that would be fulfilled 50 years from his proclamation. So you have really about 150 years from its fulfillment from the days of Jonah, a hundred years from Jonah to Nahum speaking. So, the God can never be accused of being um, impatient or too quick to judge. Remember, he gave 120 years before the flood, right? So God always gives ample time of warning. And he's not quick to judge, but he will judge absolutely. Um, the Medes, um, about 614 B.C., um, they took the, uh, and attacked the major Assyrian uh, city of Asher. And Abba Palazar made an alliance with their king. Together, the Medes and the Chaldeans, along with the Scythians, continued the attack until Nineveh fell in 612 um, B.C. So the records are preserved in many documents. One of them is in the um, Babylonian Chronicles that is um, housed in the British Museum. So that we can verify all these things. But the important thing is we move through it. There was a time when people mocked that there was no such thing as Nineveh. That didn't exist because it was so wiped out completely. And we'll look at some of that as we move through the book and all that. But uh, it's amazing. But then again, God gets archaeologists, digs something up, and proves all the intellectual stupid people stupider. Um, and so it's nice. Um, Nahum opens up here his prophecy. Uh, of judgment against Nineveh, declaring the um, credentials of God for his judgment. It's an interesting introduction, and and, and rightly put, really. So let me um, read read here verse 1 through 8. He says, uh, The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Alkashite. God is jealous, and the Lord um, avenges. The Lord avenges and his furies. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the seas and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Basham and Carmel wither, and the flowers of Lebanon will. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown uh, down by him. The Lord is good; a stronghold in the days of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with the, an overflowing flood, he will make an utter, end of its uh, make an, an utter end of his place, and darkness will pursue. His enemies. The credentials of God are placed before us here and they consist of the following thing. You have the nature of God in verse 1 through 3. That's His first credential. Second, the power of God. The middle of 3 down to 6. And thirdly, the justice of God. Verse 7 through 8. He begins with the nature of God, which is a foundational qualification. Look at verse 1. He says, um, Nahum revealed God was able to proclaim the future. Now, anybody top that? <laughs> I mean, that alone should qualify you for anything, right? Uh, if you could tell the future, you'd go to the ponies and you'd only have to make one bet. That's it. The prophet Nahum opens the book proclaiming the central theme notice of the prophecy, the burden against Nineveh. The word burden refers to the prophetic utterance of doom. Chapter 1 is the doom of Nineveh. Chapter 2 is the doom described. And chapter 3 is the doom deserved. I mean, she was done. Her number was up. Um, uh, Isaiah 13, 1, Ezekiel 12, 10, use the word burden. Sometimes the word is translated oracle. It speaks of the, in a technical way for the divine revelation. Um, in Jeremiah's day, he, um, um, the false prophets were saying, the, temple, the burden of the Lord, the burden of the Lord. And God says, Jeremiah, if you say the burden of the Lord one more time, I'm not going to talk to you no more. Because it became just, just a phrase without its meaning. Um, the city of Nineveh was a magnificent capital, as you know. A um, uh, constant dread and, and, and horror to the nation of Israel, perpetual enemies. It was established by Nimrod in Genesis 1011 as when we studied the book of Jonah. It was uh, Nineveh proper with four large cities that uh, situate on the edge of the trapezoid of Nineveh proper, uh, metropolitan, uh, believed to be about three to 350 square miles. Uh, Nineveh was uh, bordered um, and bounded by three rivers, and the Tigris was one of them, the other two, and then mountains on the backside, side. Um, and so it was very fortified. It had its, um, its rivers, its dams, its sluices, its um, canals to inundate and everything else, and all concentric so that it was just a, a fortress of incredible imagination. When we studied um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, we saw that also. But every one of these places, God said he was going to bring down, and he did. You see, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Men trust in themselves. Uh, The outer walls were 60 miles around, 100 feet high, enough for three chariots to drive abreast. Um, There were towers around the wall completely, 200 feet high, guarding the city constantly. In the inner wall, the city was three miles in diameter, villages and suburbs and everything else. Just an incredible place. Um, The prophet Nahum was also revealing here. Notice the nature of what he was about to proclaim, the book of the vision. So in other words, this proclamation was God's revelation, not his own. It wasn't because he was bitter. It wasn't because he hated these people, though it's revealed true of Jonah, but that's still not the origin of the revelation. It's a vision. It's that which comes by night or or, or by, by a person when he's awake in contrast to dreams when you're asleep. And so this is directly from heaven. Um, Isaiah one one, Ezekiel one one, Daniel two nine, many other prophets. The vision that the Lord gave to, and then you would fill in the blank whatever it is. So this is God directing this vision, um, and uh, He's just a mere human instrument. And sometimes when you direct People to the Lord, or you say, you know, the Bible says this, and God says this about this, and they don't like it, and they think that you're the one that's having that interpretation. You're the one that's telling you to be. When it isn't, you're just the messenger. This is what the Bible says. Read it. If you can read English, you can understand the Bible. You may not understand the significance spiritually, but you can understand the content of what it's saying. His name, Nahum, means comfort or consolation in Hebrew. It's the shortened form of Nehemiah, comfort of Yahweh. It's the only time it's found here in the Old Testament. It, uh, the name, not this, his name, but a name like his is found in Luke 3.25 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But that's it. Now, Nahum would be a comfort to Judah because uh, God's going to mention Judah in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. As they would hear about the judgment of God upon Nineveh finally destroying Assyria. They would rejoice because Assyria had taken the northern um, kingdom captive in 722. And uh, since then, the southern kingdom was under oppression and tribute to Assyria. Pain, alimony, okay? And so they were just having a bad time. And when they hear of this, they're going to rejoice, so Nahum was just a mouthpiece of God, foretelling the future things of the judgment of Nineveh. And there was no way Nineveh was going to escape. This is always man. Well, I, you know, I've got it all worked out. And, you know, I got my ace in the hole and all that. And you're going to need it. There is no one that escapes the judgment of God. Not one person. Now, the prophet Nahum gave the name of the town he was from. Uh, Nahum the uh, Alkashite. And some say it's a town in Assyria, the old site of um, ancient Nineveh, modern-day Mosul. We're familiar with those names because of the war in Iraq, and it's east of the Tigris River. But Nahum never went into captivity, so there's really no evidence for that at all. And still others say it was a village 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in Judah, around the same vicinity as Micah, the Moorishite. And that seems to fit a little more as you examine the internal evidence of the letter. And Jerome says it was a small village north of Galilee. As you know, many times different places have the same name. You know, Las Vegas. You have one in Colorado. You have one in Vegas. You know, or whatever it is. They repeat them all over. Um, but when you go to uh, Israel, some of, you, you'll go, some of you will go as, as next month. When you go to Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, you have the town of Capernaum, which is the town of Nahum. And so it's very good evidence that he has some origins there. So there's a lot of scenarios we can conjecture on. Uh, some believe he was up there north and it got so heavy that he just moved down and that's the town that south of Judah. There are Jerusalem, and that's possibly it. But again, it's conjecture. But it's not important. Important is that he identifies himself, and we know there were such towns. And he did speak. Now, notice in verse 2, Nahum revealed God was a holy God. Um, verse 2 through 3. Now, don't miss this, because if you miss this, then you, you, know, you miss the message that he's trying to get here. The prophet stated that God's holiness and jealousy are one when he says, God is jealous. The word jealous in its most basic meaning is an intolerance of rivals. If if your husband is not jealous at someone hitting on you, something's wrong. If your wife is not jealous when somebody wants to hit on you, something's wrong. They don't love you. Love is jealous. The only problem with our jealousy is sometimes it gets a little tweak. Okay? But the jealousy of God... Is not selfish. Our, our, our jealousy is selfish and self-centered often. And it becomes destructive. The jealousy of God is selfless, only looking out for our good. There's a difference. So we try to understand human emotions and apply them to God. Well, you can't. Two different things. Um... The exact form is only used one at a time Uh, in Joshua 24. Listen to me. It says, But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord Yahweh, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. So He ties the holiness of God and the jealousy of God. Very important. It's the same coin, but the different sides. God was jealous over the covenant people of Israel, his wife. He had promised to judge her for her sins when she would give herself over to sin. God doesn't want to share you or me with anybody. He's going to take us away from him or destroy our relationship with him. He's looking out for us. The holiness of God demands his jealousy, and his jealousy is the evidence of his holiness. God had joined Israel exclusively to... Um, his service and sword to protect her from all her enemies this is the jealousy in our text here Um, he was going to destroy Nineveh Nineveh had returned to a life of destruction and sin they had repented genuine repentance under Jonah not now how soon they turn back we don't know but now it's going to be 150 years by the time it's fulfilled 100 years by the time of the proclamation Nahum chapter 2, or chapter 1 verse 3 says, For now I will break off your yoke from you, in other words, the yoke of Assyria from Judah, and burst your bonds apart. So God was going to fight for Israel. Uh, Nahum 2, 1, it says, He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the forts, watch the roads, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. This is God speaking to Nineveh. But then... It's not going to work. You can do all you want. How are you going to defend against God's judgment? Chapter 2, verse 2 of Nahum, he says, For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers, the Syrians, have emptied them out, the Israelites, and ruined their vine branches. So God being jealous now fights on behalf of Israel. Notice the prophet stated that God executes righteous justice. Nahum says, and the Lord avenges, the Lord avenges and is furious. The word avenge does not mean to take revenge as we think of it. But vengeance, vindication, Himself of his just judgment, not satisfying his anger alone. You knock one of my teeth out, I want to knock ten of yours out. That's why the law says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's not a, a, a command to knock his tooth out, it's a limitation on your anger. Most people don't realize that in the Bible not a command it's a limitation on my evil heart eye for eye tooth for tooth we want eye for life (laughs) one tooth for your whole face we want to go a little farther so we can't think of God this way so the word refers to the perfect righteous judgment and justice over disobedience sin and evil God makes no mistakes the word furious again indicates the holy righteous anger Against the sin and the evil. That he's going to judge. Notice three times the covenant name of God is related. All in capital letters Yahweh. And three times the word for uh, avenge. It's the same word in the Hebrew. Twice avenge and once vengeance. Three times the name. Three times avenge. And we know that the angels cry out. Holy, holy, holy. Three times before the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah six three. The Lord brings righteous justice on two kinds of people. Notice there in verse two at the end. There, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversary; those who oppress his people and oppose him. It goes back to Genesis twelve three: those that bless you are blessed; those that curse you are cursed. And he reserves wrath, notice, for his enemies. In other words, he guards over it to be poured out in judgment at the right time. So he's patient. Notice in the beginning of three, the prophet stated no one can ever accuse God of being too quick to judge. Because we're always accusing people. Well, you didn't give me a chance. Well, you know, if you would have told me, well, you know, if you would have done, you know, you know how it is. God is the epitome of patience. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. We've talked about this word slow. It means literally long nostril. In other words, he's not controlled by his anger, his wrath, or his emotions, but by his perfect holiness and justice. The great power, again, refers to his incredible ability to control and overcome and vindicate himself In judgment over anyone in such a way that he does no wrong. See, for you and me, that's impossible. I might be right on target sometimes, but most of the time we're not. God, the heavenly judge in his heavenly courtroom, cannot ignore sin, listen to him, and will not at all acquit the wicked in three there. The word acquit means to be found innocent or free of guilt. He's not going to pronounce that on a guilty person. So either our sins are judged upon the cross of Jesus Christ or they're judged upon ourselves. That's the only two choices we have. And there's, there's no way out of it. The justice of God cannot be corrupted. It's impossible. You know, when you think in light of uh, God's knowledge and He's revealing the future and you look at our day and age when 80% plus of all the scientists that have ever lived are alive today and that's a heck of a lot of information a heck of a lot of smart people and even in this age of information technology that we have the electronic world but in comparison to God it's it's nothing it's nothing and a lot of the information we have, it's absolutely wrong. We just don't know it. <laughs> there, there's a big test going on in the scientific community that perhaps the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, is not accurate. It's <laughs> a lot of stuff we don't know, it changes. But God, he never changes. God has revealed to man the past judgments from the Garden of Eden to the occupation of the land of Canaan by Israel. He told us of the period of creation that he created everything good, 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 very good. And he put Adam and Eve there. This is all prior to the fall in Genesis 1-2. So he gave everything that was necessary, and he was not the one that ruined it. And then he told us about the fall that introduced sin and death and judgment came and they were expelled from the expelled from the garden in Genesis three. There you have your first judgment. Then he told us of the judgment of the whole world through the flood of the days of Noah from Genesis four through eight, and only eight people survived it. Did it make the next world better? Nope. Started all over again. Because they were sinners. Then he gave us the judgment over the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. They were rebelling against God. They wanted to make a way to take people to worship heaven and the heavenly host and everything else and disobey from dispersing them in the world. And then he gave us the judgment of the gods of Egypt in the judgment of the land of Canaan through his own people, Exodus 3-12 through and the entire book of Joshua. You ever read these books? God has put all these judgments, his ways and why he did it and how he did it and through who he did it so that you learn and you apply it to your life, to the world that you're living in today as you look around it. Because men will corrupt it and twist it and explain it differently. God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar the empires of the world to come and their judgments by a great image before they ever existed. You find it in Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8, and 12. You have the full layout of the last seven years, the last empire through the Antichrist in Revelation 6 through 19. He began with the head of gold that was in existence at that time through Daniel as he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, who would judge medo Persia or would be judged by Medo-Persia by the shoulders and arms of silver. And then the shoulders and arms of silver would be reduced to one nation, Persia, and they would be judged by Alexander the Great, the belly of brass. Then the belly of brass would be judged by Rome, the legs of iron. And the legs of iron would be judged by disintegrating from within And regathering under the ten-nation confederacy that would give the ultimate authority to the Antichrist who would rule the world, who would be judged by Jesus Christ at his second coming at the end of the Great Tribulation. All of this before it took place, only when Babylon was there. So he has laid out the history for man. We know. We look back. We see the accuracy of it. Many would love to interpret those books as that they were written after the fact, but that's impossible. It's a complete lie. Listen to Psalm 67, 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. That's the millennial kingdom. He judges the nation of the sheep from the goats, how they treated the Jew during the Great Tribulation, Matthew 25. So, the nature of God qualifies him to be the perfect judge of man. That's the first thing that name tells us. Secondly, notice verse 3, the rest of 3, down to 6. He gives us the power of God. Nahum declared God is greater than his creation. So, he's going to give evidence of all this. Notice, the prophet stated God controls the weather of, uh, of nature. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. So God moves in the wind throughout the earth, necessary for the seasons and even some destruction and things that take place. um, For the maintenance of the earth and the animal kingdom. How powerful are snow, sea, and desert storms. Destructive. But God is much greater than all of that. He controls it all. He steers up the sea with his power and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm, Job twenty six twelve says. Notice next, he says, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. That's a great picture. This is a theophany, as if God was running through the sky, his playground, and dust kicking up. <laughs> Interesting. 58 of the 87 times clouds are found in the scriptures the context is a theophany. Notice in verse four, the prophet stated God controls the water of the earth. Also, these are all qualifying things for him to be judged. He controls the oceans. He rebukes the sea. Job helps us out here in the thirty-eight chapter of Job. After all, uh, his miserable friends and physicians no value have comfort. Try to comfort Job, but really condemn him. And Job says some off-the-wall things. So God says, okay, Job, gird up your loins. I want to ask you some questions. Where were you? Boom, 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 boom. He goes on. Those questions in chapter 38 still can't be answered today. Bye, (laughs) man. Listen to what he says in 38, 8 through 11. Oh, or who shut in the sea with doors? He's asking Job. When it bursts forth and issues from the womb. What a great picture. When I made the clouds its garment... In thick darkness, it's swaddling band. When I fixed my limits for it, I set bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no further. And here, your proud ways must stop. Wow. How many of you can go down to Huntington Beach and tell that wave, hold? Well, sea is powerful. Powerful. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Job thirty-eight sixteen, the springs of the sea. There are currents underwater, Coriolis effect. The ships follow to make their ships safe and faster. Bible knew about them before we even discovered them. <laughs> he brings drought. Notice he says he makes it dry. Amos 1 2. He says, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So God brings droughts in judgment. All these things are in his control, and he uses them for judgment. I will make the rivers dry and sell the land, into the land of the, the hand of the wicked, I will make the land waste, and all that is in it by the hand of aliens, I the Lord have spoken, at Ezekiel 30 verse 12, that's when he took Judah into captivity, it was judgment, droughts, he dries up the water sources, notice he says he dries up all the rivers, Job fourteen eleven helps us as waters disappear from the sea and the river becomes parched and dried up. Elijah the Tishbite, memory inhabits Gilead, and and he said to Ahab, "As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, except at my word." First Kings seventeen one, God's judgment. He went up and he did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and he stayed at the book of which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. First Kings 17, through 7 God was judging the north. God was bringing a drought severely. Then notice he causes the vegetation to wither, Basham and Carmel wither, the, the flowers of Lebanon wilts. Basham is the highlands, the region across the Jordan, directly east from Carmel. Some of you will be there with us when we're there up in Carmel, but Haifa's behind us. I'm looking to the valley of Megiddo, beautiful fertile plain on the Carmelite monastery that will be there. And um, it's a very lush area. Carmel is the east west mountains uh, range of the Mediterranean. Again, uh, Haifa behind the back. Lebanon mountains runs north and uh, north south in Lebanon, west of um, Beka Valley, uh, north of Israel, directly north of, of, of Israel. And then um, remember, Hiram floated the cedars from Lebanon down to Joppa on rafts for the building of the Temple of Solomon in 1 Kings 5 9. Beautiful, lush, great big trees and all that. Israel had forests, now none. They've tried to reforest it and they're coming along. Okay, but now, what it used to be. There were lions and bears during the days of David. But um, many people don't realize that Lebanon belongs to Israel. If you look at the, the, the territory that God gave to Abraham, he said, from the river Euphrates on down. Israel has never taken control of that land, ever. Not even in the days of Solomon. But it will in the millennial kingdom. I know arrows don't like to hear that, but that's just the facts, Jack. Um, Look at verse 5. The prophet stated God shakes the earth through earthquakes. Now, we should be familiar with those earthquakes. we get some big ones here. They say the big one's coming, but it really isn't. The one that's the big one's in Revelation. I'll read that to you afterwards. <laughs> the mountains um, quake before him. Look at verse 5. And The words of Amos uh, uh, tells us that he wrote in the days of Uzziah two years before the earthquake in Amos one. The centurion in... At the cross in Matthew twenty seven fifty four says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and he rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it, Matthew twenty eight two. God brings earthquakes. Now, there's natural stuff that happens, but there's times when God brings earthquake. God brings droughts. God brings storms. God brings disaster and judgment, ladies and gentlemen. The hills melt. Landslides have buried personal homes, private homes, small communities in the history of man. Floods and rain have removed overwhelming tons of mud and rocks speeding down hills and mountains. You want to see an incredible move of debris? Go to the Grand Canyon. <laughs> God did that through the flood. Just tore that place apart. The earth heaves at his presence. Creation acknowledges its creator. And creation is subject to its creator. So the prophet says, yes, the world and all who dwell in it, implying every person on earth, cannot stand before him. He's so much greater than they. Subject to him, whether they like it or not, now or later. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah declared no one can survive the day of judgment. The prophet presents a rhetorical question. Who can stand before his indignation? The picture is of standing before the authority of the holy God at his tribunal. He's the judge, as well as the prosecuting attorney. The cherubim cover their feet in Isaiah 6, 2. With two they cover their feet, two their face, and two they fly, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Shekinah glory is just overwhelming. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and other passages, but Ezekiel 1 gives you a great picture. There's only one correct answer for this rhetorical question. It is no one. No one. If you say I, you have just failed the course of Bible. No king, no dictator. No president, no wealthy person, no poor person, no one. No one can endure it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. The indignation again refers to the holy, righteous, and just judgment of God. Because our sin is so horrific before a holy God, that no one can endure the consequences which is the natural consequences of holiness against evil. It's it's natural. When God charges and accuses a person or nation, when God passes sentence on a person or nation, no one will say anything. Everybody has a big mouth down here. No one's going to say anything up there. Trust me. When he comes back, Notice the prophet presents a second rhetorical question. The picture this time is of God's authority pronouncing the verdict and sentence. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? The word endure simply means to maintain oneself and survive it. There have been times when people go through accidents or some situation that by all rights, they should have died and they say, I can't believe I survived it. Well, no one will ever say that if they have not repented. No one will survive it if they have not repented. The judgment is perfect, just, and true. Then notice the picture by two similes are the horrific consequences on the person or nation that is unsurvivable. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. He was without sin; let him cast the first stone. The only one that could cast a stone was Jesus, and he didn't because there was repentance. The fury is this hot displeasure poured out like a fire that consumes all. But it does not imply annihilation as many people like to teach. That once you die, you just cease to exist. No, no, no. When you die, that's just the first second of your eternity. Either in heaven or in hell. No one stops existing. You just move from the temporal to the eternal. There's only two addresses you can be sent to, heaven or hell. They both start with the same letter. Make sure you get the right one. The rocks indicate and illustrate the mode of Old Testament stoning. Death. Listen to Hebrews ten thirty through thirty one. For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine," but not. Payback, the way you and I do. Vengeance, righteous justice is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge. Listen, His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Who is God judging in the Old Testament? His people. They're in captivity. Who's the warning in the New Testament against? His people. Those who have the light of God, those who have the word of God, those who know about the judgments of God. You know, the sun is so large that if it were hollow, it could contain more than one million worlds the size of our earth. Is that incredible? There are stars in space so large that they could easily hold 500 million suns the size of ours. There are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in the known universe. God created them all. (laughs) And he keeps them all going. Wow. Perspective. I do believe God brings judgment sometimes by nature, be they floods, storms, or earthquakes, because we have evidence of that in the Scriptures. We just don't know which one really is the judgment of God. And I'm glad we don't. But for me to say as a Christian that I do believe God judges and is judging by a lot of natural disaster, people go crazy. Oh, you Christians... Grab a number and get in line. I have evidence for that. What do you have? Nothing but your dumb opinion. Emotions. I just don't know and thank God we don't. Then at times people are foolish and they move into areas that are in danger. They move into flood areas and they get flooded out and drown. They build a cabin in the in the mountains and Yogi Bear eats them for lunch. They build a house hundred yards from the beach and they get destroyed. They bring it on themselves. There's a flash flood, and you come along with your car and you say, oh, I think I can make it. it's the last thing last last thing that you think you can do. You bring it on yourself. Common sense. But I do believe God judges, and I believe He's judging America and has been judging America in many different ways. As you look to our history, and you look when we turned in, in in great numbers, uh, uh, watershed 1962. Way before that, but watershed mark in 1962. And now uh, the things that have taken place through uh, natural disasters and things. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is reproached to any people, Proverbs 14, uh, 34 says. I believe um, God is still bringing droughts and famines. And I believe that the scriptures verify that. Once again, we don't know which ones. We know that drought and famines at times are caused by man because they do not provide the resources, the technology to certain nations, to certain people. And they, they're the ones that cause it, simply to reduce the world population. Now, you may think I'm crazy, but it's okay. It's just the facts. If you think the leaders of the world are looking out for you, you you've been smoking too much Mary Jane. Um, they're not looking out for you, especially those here in America. Amos four eight says this. He brought drought to judge them. And he says, um, So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water. But they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I did this, you didn't repent. I did this, you didn't repent. I did this, you didn't repent. I put water, you just drank, you came back, you didn't repent. So you know what he says next? You remember Amos? Prepare to meet your God. It wasn't for a hug. It was judgment. We have the prophecies of the last seven years of man's history on the earth revealing horrific, horrific judgments by nature. Let me give you a few of them. Revelation six twelve says, I look when the open... When he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black and sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Revelation 8, 5 says, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, meaning in heaven, and he threw it down to the earth, and there was noises, thundering, lightnings, and earthquakes. Revelation 11:13. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, Jerusalem. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. That's an exception. Most of the time they don't repent. Also, in Revelation 11:19, it says, "Then the temple of God was open in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in his temple, and there was lightning, noises, thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. Listen to the big one that's coming, the earthquake. And it's not going to be in California. It's going to be all over the world. Revelation 16, 18 through 21. And there were noises and thunderings and lightning. And there was a a great earthquake, such as a, a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth from the beginning of creation. Listen. Now... The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of all of, of the nations fell. The great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of her wine of the fierceness of her wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, about two hundred pounds. That put it then in your car. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. This, this isn't fiction, ladies and gentlemen, any more than we are pressing to a one world government, bank, food reserve, and military control. I've been teaching this stuff for 42 years. When we turn the tragic watershed of our nation nine eleven and two hundred one, we just entered a new age. The last of the last days. They made all the difference in the world. The power of God qualifies him to be Supreme Judge of Man. Who's gonna tell him no? You? Notice, lastly, he has the justice of God in verse 7 and 8. Nahum declared the righteous can be sure of God that he knows his own. The prophet based this on God's attribute. The Lord is good. Good means pleasant, agreeable in every way, in every sense. Goodness is one of the moral attributes of God and is immutable. Immutable. The attribute that describes God as unable to change, he cannot increase or decrease in goodness for better or worse. The goodness of God endures continually. Every one of his attributes are immutable. They don't grow, they don't decrease, they don't change, they don't learn, they don't evolve. They just are unto perfection. You remember Jonah Exodus thirty four six he quoted it in Jonah four two, and the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord God merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That's why Jonah didn't want to go. He knew God was gracious, if they repented, He was going to forgive them. He didn't want to see them forgiven. God's moral attribute of goodness is imparted to man and is responsible for man's potential for goodness. But it's not perfect or consistent for our bent is towards darkness and evil. Not good. We have a potential for good. We're creating the image and likeness of God. But our bent is towards evil. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. The Lord saw the wickedness of man great on the earth. And in every intent of the thought of the heart was only evil once in a while. No, it says continually. Genesis 6, 5. Notice the prophet then stated the righteous can depend on God for protection. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Stronghold means a place of safety, refuge, a fortress, if you will, like the coney, kind of rat-like. We'll see some of those when we go up to En down there by the Dead Sea. Um, And um, one who looks to God, one who seeks God, one who rests on God, one who commits himself to God. Uh, Like that coney, he he knows he's vulnerable, so he, he seeks his protection in the rock where the animals can't get him. He hides in the rock. The time is a day of trouble, times of distress, affliction tribulations, in view of the time they are alive every generation. This Bible is sufficient for every Christian in every generation in every country in whatever home they live in and whatever peoples around them the books have never changed in number, the content has never changed People have destroyed the Bible. They're gone. It's still here. Notice the prophet stated, God knows who trusts in him. The knowledge that God possesses is not learned knowledge, not acquired. It's innate in him. Omniscience. He knows all things. How do you even have to think? We, we can't even enter into the, that discussion. The word trust is again to seek refuge, protection, confidence in God. Total confidence, like a child to a parent. So the word trust complements the word stronghold, complete dependency, a refuge, a fortress. The flip side of that is in verse 8. Nahum declared, The unrighteous can be sure God knows his op- opponents. So you have those who trust and those who oppose. God knows both. Notice the prophet stated. Prophesying of the manner of Nineveh's destruction by the overflow of the Tigris River. Listen to the words. Because that's exactly how it happened. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its in chapter 1 14 the first portion the Lord has given a command concerning you your name shall be perpetuated no longer your number is up thou fool tonight your soul is required of you and you think you're going to build a bigger barn for all your stuff hmm Malach Arnaim 2.11 He who scatters has come up before you, before your face. Man the force, watch the roads, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. I read this before. But to what? To no avail. This is God's declaration. Your judgment is going to be complete. Nothing, nothing left. Nahum two 2.6. Listen to very carefully. The gates of the rivers are open and the palace dissolved. That's exactly the record in archaeological finds and all that. How God did it. The Tigris River just came and washed out a whole section of that incredible wall. The prophet stated the complete desperation of the Assyrians. I mean... You know, everybody, again, everybody feels safe and this and that. But then when things start flying and things start happening, everybody's all nice when they have all control, their sanity. Well, I would do this, I would do that. Okay, yeah. The prophet stated the complete desperation of the Assyrians. Listen, and darkness will pursue his enemies. Two scriptures I'm going to give you. Chapter 2, verse 10. Listen carefully. She is empty, desolate, and waste. The heart melts. The knees shake. Much pain is in every side. And all their faces are drained in color. These are bad dudes. They become little girls. Surely your people in your midst are women. Chapter 3, verse 13. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. This is absolute truth what's going to happen. You know, Lady Justice has blindfolds and a scale and a sword that she would not respect any person for justice and that only the evidence would weigh out the fairness of it and if need be, execute capital punishment. That's what she represents. Today, you have to take the blindfolds out, put a wallet on her scales, and throw the sword away, and give her a pink iPhone. Interesting. Justice was justice at one time. Well, all those flaws no longer here. One trial says it all. OJ. It changed everything. Down. The goodness of God is described as follows. Listen carefully. Abundant when God passes before Moses in Exodus 34 6. His goodness is sufficient, magnifying his patience towards man. His goodness is exercised as the object of the one that really deserves no mercy and goodness. But because he's good, he's provided a way by which that can come. It's said to be great, his goodness, in Psalm thirty-one nineteen for those who fear him, for those who put their trust in him. It's said to be enduring in Psalm 52, 1, again, for those who fear him and for those who trust In the mercy of God, mercy is a branch of God's goodness less than a person deserves. It's said to be satisfying in Psalm 65, 4, for the man God has chosen and for the man who dwells in God's courts. It's said to be universal in Psalm 145, 9, to all of mankind and to all of his works. You see, God's goodness is for all who trust in him And it's to be celebrated in joy, rejoicing. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, rejoiced for all the good things that God had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the land of the Egyptians in Exodus 18.9. He rejoiced over it. Moses told Israel, so you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you and your house, you and your Levites and the strangers who among you. Deuteronomy 26, 11. Everything that God did, they were to rejoice. See, his goodness, his goodness. Because very few times, I mean, how many times do you and I really deserve what God does for us? At least we understand each other. If, if God only blessed me when I was good, I'd be dead. If God only blessed me when I deserved it, I might as well walk away. Listen to John. He rejoiced over the union of Christ and His bride. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. Revelation 19, 7. Wow. The justice of God is magnified by the goodness of God alone, making Him qualified to judge man justly. If If that attribute was all I had, it would be enough. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Psalm 82, 8. Rise up, O judge, of the earth render punishment to the proud Psalm ninety four two for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth, he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his wrath Psalm ninety six thirteen. Now do you think God is coming to judge the earth? (laughs) Absolutely. Is it a scare tactic? No, it's a promise. It's an absolute promise. The justice of God qualifies him to be the only judge over man. These are the qualifications for him to judge Nineveh. They apply to everybody. So Nahum has given to us the judgment against Nineveh, declaring the credentials of God. To be able to judge, make those judgments. The nature of God qualifies him to be the perfect judge of man. The power of God qualifies them to be the supreme judge of man. And the justice of God qualifies them to be the only judge over man. All judgment has been given to the Son by the Father. All will stand before Jesus Christ and their knee will bow for judgment. Right now they bow for salvation. There's a big difference. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then he would plead with you to bow now so he can pour out his goodness on you. Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray you continue to deal with our hearts. And we pray even now you would speak to those that do not know you here or the Internet, Lord. And they would open their heart to you. As you're praying. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. He loves you. He would much rather deal with you in forgiveness than judgment. That's a strange way for him to deal in judgment. That's why he's so patient. 120 years, 150 years, whatever. He's just patient. That doesn't mean He, he's a fooled or anything else. So if you don't know him, but God has made himself known to you, and you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation that you as a sinner deserve the wrath of God and the judgment of God, but that He's made a provision through His Son, Jesus Christ, for you, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And you can call upon Him, and He will forgive and save you right now. But only you can make that confession. No one can make it for you. So if you want to be born again right now, I'm going to say this prayer. This is your prayer to Him, not to us. And He's going to forgive you and make you His child right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.